Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s, and he had many physical ailments. One of the worst was gout. It is a disease in which elevated levels of uric acid cause extremely painful inflammation of the joints, particularly joints in the hands, the knuckles, and the feet and the toes. A man once came to Spurgeon and said to him, My rheumatism is worse than your gout. And Spurgeon said, I will tell you the difference between rheumatism and gout. Put your finger in a vice and turn the crank until you cannot stand the pain anymore. That's your rheumatism. Now turn it three more times. That's my gout. (laughs) Jay Adams uses that story in his book entitled From Forgiven to Forgiving to illustrate the difficulty of becoming forgiving people. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us that when a brother sins against us, we are to go to him so that there can be reconciliation. Listen to the words of Christ. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Obviously, there's been a reconciliation. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him. See, Peter is tracking here. He understands exactly where this is going. And it's not going well. Peter says, because he can see, if, if I'm going to just forgive this guy, all he has to do is say, will you forgive me? Peter can see that this guy's going to take advantage of him. So Peter says, he comes to Jesus and says, well, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he pulls out his ace up to seven times. I would have not been so generous. I might have said three, maybe two times. But Peter is full of grace and compassion and mercy up to seven times. And Jesus answers him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In J. Adams' book, he illustrates what Jesus is saying here by telling this story. Suppose a brother comes and stomps on your toes. That may be literal or it may be some kind of figurative stomping on the toe. We are not to whine and feel sorry for ourselves. We are not to hold a pity party and invite others to join us. We are not 
to become angry and storm about. And we are not to show our flattened toes to everyone in the church and say to them, now you understand, I do not mean to gossip by telling you what so-and-so did. I'm just warning you so that you can protect yourself from the same thing in the future. None of those correspond to Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 18. Instead, here is what Jesus said to do. Go to the person and tell them what they did wrong. Take him gently by the hand and show him your smashed toes. And that is rheumatism. We avoid such confrontations, maybe even at all costs, right? The risk is just too great. The, the, the pain to us of that kind of dealing with one another is putting our finger in a vice and turning the handle. Ah, but gout. <laughs> gout is forgiving him when he asks, why is this gout? Well, suppose you're minding your own business and a sister comes up and bops you right in the nose. You're standing there nourishing your sore snout and she comes up to you and says, do you know what I just did? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, why do you do that? Well, I have this terrible temper, you see. And I just got upset. And, well, you were just the closest one around. And it was nothing personal. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Uh, yeah, but don't do it again. Five minutes later, as the initial pain begins to subside, some of the blood from the vessels is returning back to your heart instead of pounding at the end of your nose. She comes and bops you again. Then she says, Oh, do you know what I just did? Yeah, I do. Why do you do? I thought you said you were not going to do that anymore. And she said, Well, you can't overcome a temper like that in five minutes. Will you forgive me? Yeah, but don't do it again. Seven times that day, she comes and bops you in the nose and asks for forgiveness. And forgiving her the seventh time, now that's gout. You can read J. Adams' book on your own and probe into all of the clever illustrations that he has and all of the different aspects of forgiveness. But today, what we're going to do this morning is hone in on one aspect of forgiveness. What is happening in our hearts that makes us reluctant forgivers? What is going on in our hearts that makes us reluctant forgivers? That is the question which I believe that Jesus asks and answers in Matthew 18, right after Peter, as I've just read, offers to forgive even Seven times. Jesus tells a story. You you ought to know by now when he starts to tell one of his parables, it's best just to run because the concluding application is going to cut to the heart, isn't it? But Peter stood there like a man and took it. And Jesus tells this story and asks Peter, what's really going on in your heart that the best you could do is seven times? For I tell you, it's not seven but 70 times 7. And he tells the story like we would go and see a play, a drama. 
a drama in three acts. That's the reason I chose not to read the whole text at first, is I want to let it unfold as we walk through the passage. The application of Matthew 18 appears in Colossians 3. Therefore, since you've been forgiven, put on kindness and compassion toward one another, forgiving one another from the heart. That's Paul's application of this text. But we want to, even though many of you obviously have read the text before, you already know what's going to happen, but to kind of let it unfold as a story because Jesus tells it as a parable or a drama or a play in three acts. In act one, an offer of forgiveness is made. In act two, that offer of forgiveness is refused. And in act three, the offer of forgiveness is withdrawn. And then Jesus applies it to us. Let's listen and try to hear it like Peter would have that day so long ago when Jesus turns to him and says, can I tell you a story? (laughs) Act one, an offer of forgiveness made. Listen to Jesus. I say to you, not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle these accounts, One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. In order to understand this story, you have to know something about the money of that time period. Now, the primary unit of money is the denarius. It has not yet been mentioned, but it will be in a later section. Everybody listening to Jesus knew what a denarius was. So let me include you so you're not left out in the cold. The denarius is a Roman coin that was used as the standard pay for a workman's daily wage. They did not have our kind of wild variations in pay. If you worked for a day, you got a denarius. Everybody knew that. Basically, everybody got the same pay, a denarius for a day's labor. Now, the second unit of money, which you need to know about what is mentioned here in our text, notice how much he owes, 10,000 talents. Now, their economy was based on real money, not paper money, so it was weighed out. You had a certain number of denarii that made up a talent. It was just weighed money. And a talent weighed 6,000 denarii. A denarius was one day's pay, so 6,000 denarii was 6,000 days' pay. And this servant owes the king, according to verse 24, 10,000 denarii. Talents. Let me tell you four things about that debt. Four things about the debt that you need to understand to appreciate the offer of forgiveness which is made. First, notice the size of the debt. Now, a a denarius is one day's pay. 6,000, or a talent, which is 6,000 denarii, is 6,000 days' pay. So if he owes 10,000 talents, he owes 60 million days' pay. 
pay. 60 million days of hard labor. That, for those who cannot do the math in their head, is 164,383 years of work. Now, that's if he pays no taxes. He moves in with his in-laws, right? He's going to move in with the in-laws. He doesn't buy food. He does not buy clothing. He does not pay rent. He does not pay any taxes. Every day of every year, he goes, he works himself to the bone, he gets a denarius, he takes it and gives it to the king. It's going to take 164,383 years to pay off the debt. Now, that's at no interest. What if the king charges interest? We're buying a house, and the lowest rate we could get, I think, was six and three-eighths, but the math is too hard for that. So let's say he only charges 5%. You can't find 5% loan on personal debt. Go to Discover Card and take out a loan for 60 million days worth of labor and see if they charge you 5%. But this king is gracious. 5% interest rate. At the end of the first year, he will owe, listen, 3 million more days of work. You hear that? Three million more days of work. So the question I would ask of you is what good does it do to earn a denarius when every day you owe 8,219 more? You're losing ground really bad. Now the numbers in this parable are not really significant in themselves. The numbers are significant because Jesus is telling a funny story. This is funny. Everybody chuckled. Everybody laughed when he said the servant owes 10,000 talents because there's just no way to comprehend that kind of money. There's no way to even think about it. It's like when you tell your five-year-old, I just can't afford to buy you a trampoline this year for Christmas. And she says, why? Does it cost a bazillion dollars? It's just funny. There's no such thing as 10,000 talents. The debt is not simply huge. No, it is huge. It is huge. But the way Jesus tells this story, this debt is so huge as to be humorous. Here's the point. It is a debt greater than anyone could ever imagine. The servant owes a debt greater than anyone could ever imagine. To appreciate the offer of forgiveness, you must understand the size of the debt. But then second, I would say to appreciate the offer of forgiveness, you also need to know the means of the debt. Throughout this parable, you may have noticed the man who owes the money to the king is called the servant. He's not an entrepreneur. He's not a lord. We would, we would call him a blue-collar worker. Now, there's nothing wrong with being blue-collar. It tells us that he worked for a living. He made an honest day's pay. That's a very good thing. But it also would have clicked in their mind, how could such a guy accumulate such a debt? Now, the text doesn't tell us. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this. And yet, I think... If we had been listening to the story in the same way that Peter and the disciples were, we would have instantly, something would have clicked in our heads. Let me tell you a word picture that I think may help you. Suppose Joe, the local teller at First National Bank, retires after 30 years of work. But the announcement in the paper, instead of saying we're having a retirement party, says Joe is going to jail because he owes the bank $8 billion. $219,178,080, which is a very generous salary of $50,000 a year multiplied by 60 
million years, which is how much this servant owes. So if you read the open the paper and it says Joe owes First National Bank a little over $8 billion dollars, and he spent the last 30 years working as a teller at the bank, the thought doesn't come to your mind, boy, I wonder who the bank manager was that loaned him $8 billion one day. No, this thought comes to your mind. That guy's been stealing money, hasn't he? This guy's a crook. And that's exactly what they would have thought. Here's a servant of the king who owes the king $60 million days worth of salary. This is not a legitimate loan gone bad. This is embezzlement. This is fraud. This is, this is theft. The man is stolen from the king. So to understand the offer of forgiveness, we see first the size of the debt, then the means of the debt, but then third, and I think this may be the most important part, you have to see the promise to pay the debt. Look at verse 26 or listen again. The servant fell down before him and said, Master, have patience with me and I will pay everything. Now let's think about that. One verse earlier, Jesus says to us, verse 25, he was not able to pay. And now he says, oh, I'm going to pay everything. Now we did a little bit of simple math and we realized that every day that this man worked, even at a low interest rate, he would owe over 8,000 more days work. He's losing ground at more than 7,999 days a day. So what audacity does he have? With what are you going to pay this? You're going to pay it all back? How? Where are you going to find 165,000 years to work? Even at 0% interest. And so I would suggest to you that when the servant turns to the king and says, Oh, king, have patience with me, and I will pay it all. That is nothing but an insult. That is a mocking of the king. It is ridiculing the king. It is making fun of the debt. He is denying that he really owes the king anything. A promise to pay is an insult when you have no money. A promise to pay is an insult when you have no money. But notice the king's response. Full of compassion he is to understand the offer of forgiveness. We see how big the debt is. We see how he might have gotten into the debt. We see the offer to pay the debt, but fourth, we see the canceling of the debt. Look at verse 27. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. If this, if, if when Jesus had told the story, he said, now at this point, the king became so infuriated that this bomb would suggest that he was going to pay off a loan which could not be paid in 167,000 years. And so the king just choked him to death. Now, we might have thought that was a little much because we're all so magnanimous, but if somebody owes you some money, you might have thought that was a good plan because this is an insult. The, the servant has basically said, Oh, king, you're a fool. You're a fool. And so if the king had attacked him or caused him to be have his head cut off or whatever, we might have justified that reaction. And yet notice how the king responds. He's moved with compassion. He does not respond to the servant the way the servant uh, spoke to him. 
Instead, he reaches down to this poor, cheating, desperate, helpless man, and he scratches through his debt. The bill will not be repaid. The obligation will be forgiven. Not, note note well, there is nothing in the text that in any way could make you imagine that it's because of the servant. He has nothing. The only clue as to the reason for the erasing of the debt is in verse 27. The king is moved with compassion. The king is abounding in mercy. The king does not treat his servants as they deserve. God is that king. To him, you owe an infinite debt. We are the poor servants. We have stolen from God the glory due his name, and we have no means with which to repay it. And that's how the curtain falls at the end of Act 1. A gracious king who is willing to forgive what is ill-deserved to give mercy and forgiveness. Now, Act 2 leads us to the question, how will the servant respond to the king's offer? Listen, beginning at verse 28 of Matthew 18. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, and you'll recognize the words, I hope, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. Unlike the money which was owed the king, this obligation could possibly be repaid. Now, it's a large debt. 100 denarii is 100 days of work, so we're talking roughly one-third of a year's salary. If you have an unsecured personal debt of one-third of all you will make in the next year, that's not insignificant. That's a large credit card debt. That's That's a lot of money. And yet, it could be repaid. But here's what's important. When compared to what the servant owed the king, when compared to what the king had just done for the first servant, this is so small a debt, could we not say it is insignificant? Could we not say it is an insignificant amount? The king has forgiven a debt greater than anyone could ever imagine, and yet this man will not overlook a fraction of, of what has been forgiven. And so the question is pressed upon us, why does he respond this way? Why does the servant refuse to forgive his fellow servant? Now, notice Jesus does not tell us exactly what's going on in the guy's head. He leaves it so that you will search your own heart and find the sinful motives within you that tell you why you do not forgive others. And yet I think... From the text, we can suggest one overarching theme uniting my heart with the heart of this wicked and unmerciful servant. And it's this I imagine that I deserve the forgiveness I'm given. See, now let's think again. Remember what the servant says when the king first offers, when, the, when he comes, first comes before the king. 
he says, I will repay what I owe. Now, that cannot be a sincere offer because it's physically impossible to repay 10,000 talents. The debt is too big. And when the king reaches down and says, no, the debt is forgiven, can't you just imagine what the servant has felt? You know, I must be a pretty good person. You know, the king, you know, not everybody gets that kind of treatment, do they? Look at all these other slobs going off to debtor's prison. Not everyone's let off scot-free like I am. The king saw something in me that makes him stand up and take notice. The king recognized in me that I deserve the best. Now, how do I know that the servant felt that way other than the fact I find the same feeling in my heart? Because when he turned to another man who owed him a few coins, and when he heard from that man's lips the exact same words he had just used for the king, he does not say, listen to what he does not say. He does not say, wow, the king is compassionate. I want to be compassionate. Wow, the king forgave great debt. I want to be like the king. I want to forgive a great debt. The king is gracious and compassionate. I want to be like the king. I want to be gracious and, com and compassionate. The king treated me better than I deserve. Therefore, I want to treat others better than, I, than they deserve. That's not what goes on in his mind, is it? We know exactly what he said. He said, does this bum know how the king just treated me? Does this bum notice that the king looked at me and took notice? Does this bum realize that I deserve special treatment because the king has forgiven me? The king is impressed with me. Now you will be impressed with me also. I must not forgive him. Why not? Because the king has already said how great I am. My wicked heart does not naturally look up at the king and see great grace. My heart looks inside itself and imagines great worth. I deserve the favors that I am offered. The king offers forgiveness based on his mercy. But here we find out that the servant refuses forgiveness based on his merit. I don't need it because I'm good. <laughs> and you who owe me a few pennies will come to recognize that. See, I don't need God's compassion. And so because I don't need God's compassion, if I never accept forgiveness, then I never have any forgiveness to give to others. The offer of forgiveness is refused. And are we not the same? Would we not certain days throw our spouses into a prison of our cold shoulders and ill treatment rather than forgive her like the king has forgiven us? Well, I thought back to when I was a teenager. It wouldn't have taken much for me to jail my parents when they performed lower than my expectations. Isn't that exactly the same thing? Mom wouldn't turn on the radio station that I wanted. If I'd have had the power like this servant, psh, throw her in jail. We're unable to forgive because forgiveness is not what we've received. I deserve better. I do my duty. 
I just want people to act the way I act. Well-deserved. Then third, act three of the drama. The offer of forgiveness is withdrawn. Listen to verses 31 to 34. So when the fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should, I, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. The king here realizes that the foolish servant has refused mercy and so he withdraws the offer. The servant has insulted the king's grace so he will now receive that which he deserves. He will receive justice. He imagined that he was getting the king's favor because that's what he deserved. I just want you to treat me like I deserve. I just want you to treat me like I deserve. And so the king says, well, if you just want to be treated like you deserve, I will do that. And so he throws him over to the torturers to pay a debt, as we already know, he cannot repay. He will be tortured forever. Now, this is a tough story, isn't it? It's not nearly as funny as it was in point one. It was better if he had just kind of stopped at the end of act one and we had snuck out and missed the rest of the story. It's a tough story. And, and my, things are tough on this guy, right? But even at the end of that, we might say, at least he got what he deserved. You know, I mean, he, he's, he's wicked. He's terrible. He's an awful guy. He's unforgiving. At least he got what he deserved. But then Jesus turns it at verse 35 and says, Can I apply this to you? So my heavenly Father also will do to you that's the torture thing from the previous verse, in case you're wondering. So my father, Heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This parable seems to be simply about forgiving other people. And it certainly is about that. There's no doubt. But at a deeper level, this parable is about being forgiven. Those who are able to forgive others are those who have accepted God's forgiveness. Those who are able to forgive others are those who have accepted God's forgiveness. This is the way all of the fruit of the Spirit works. And so the question is not, will you forgive others so you can earn God's forgiveness? The question is, if you do not forgive others, have you ever known God's forgiveness? What is it in our hearts that make us reluctant forgivers? Is it not this? We have not accepted that God's grace and God's forgiveness of us is all of grace. We have not accepted that God's forgiveness of us is all of grace. Like the servant, we leave the palace believing that we must deserve God's favor. We neither received grace because, well, we, neither, we did not need nor receive God's grace because we realize, we think, that what he offered to us was a payment for our being better than other people. And so I ask you, do you daily 
admit? Do you daily live out of this truth? I have a debt I cannot pay. I have a debt I cannot pay. Have you accepted that forgiveness is all of grace? Now, the most important way, according to this parable, one revealing way, let's say it that way, one revealing way, according to this parable, to know whether you have accepted that forgiveness is all of grace is this. Are you a forgiving person? Because people who have accepted forgiveness from the Father are characterized by eager and joyful forgiveness of others. Is that you? Are you one who keeps a record of how often and in what ways you have been wronged? Are you one who believes your life would be great if others would just do their duty? You do what you're supposed to do. Why don't they get busy doing what they should? Can you tell me of the failures of your spouse? Or has love covered a multitude of wrongs so that they are buried beneath the sea of forgiveness and grace? One of the most interesting things I've learned in talking to people and being a pastor is this. Most of us are afraid to forgive other people because we're afraid that if we do, they will use that as, as an excuse to be mean to us again in the future. Are you one that's afraid to forgive your spouse lest they continue to fail and hurt you and think it's okay because you so readily and freely forgave? As Paul said in Colossians 3, does the forgiveness of Christ characterize you? The kind of forgiveness that empowers you to treat others as if they had never sinned. That's what forgiveness is. When you treat them as if they had not done it in the first place. Free, full forgiveness. If that does not describe you, might it not be because you think of yourself as better than others? Do you not at times leave the presence of the king thinking you are a decent person, hardworking, you have the best of intentions, while your neighbor does not really try their hardest? Does it not come into your mind when you arrive even from your prayers? At least I pray. I wonder what the rest of those people are doing. If they'd get busy praying, we'd have won the election. And that's how we think, because we think that we deserve what we get. Today, we may repent of our self-centeredness. Repentance means turning back to God. And the first step is to admit, to even own the debt that we owe. To be able, in your hearts of hearts, when people sin against you, to say, I am hurt, but I owe a debt that I cannot pay. And I have been forgiven. Therefore, I can forgive others. See, knowing the forgiveness that comes from God will cause all other debts to shrink into insignificance by comparison. How often shall you forgive me when I sin against you? Not seven, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven. And where, where will you learn such compassion? It will be in turning to God and finding out that He has forgiven you 70 
billion times, 70 billion times. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Let's pray. Father, would you please make us into a forgiving people? Would you please do what you promised in Colossians 3 and in the midst of a world that does keep a record of wrongs, in the midst of uh, cities and states and countries and nations where every past hurt wants to be repaid by retribution, that we would be a truly forgiving people. That we would be the kind of people who have so put on the mercies of Christ, who are so confident in the forgiveness that you have shown us, that forgiving overflows out of our hearts. Like the king described in this parable, compassion wells up in our hearts for others, not because they deserve it, but precisely because they don't. Precisely because they need mercy, even as we do. We make our appeal to you through Jesus. Amen.